Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. In my younger days, I had a lead foot driving. And on one particular year, I had been cited five times for speeding. I know, shocking, isn't it? Anyway... I got a notice in the mail after the fifth citation. I got a notice in the mail that I I had to appear in traffic court before the judge. I don't know if you've ever had to appear before a judge. For most of us, appearing before the principal in school was fairly terrifying. And I know quite a few of you did. But when you, when you take the next level up and you actually appear before a magistrate, that can be quite disconcerting. And so um, I had to suck it up and I had to appear. And it was, uh, thank God, it wasn't an open court. It was in, in the judge's chambers and I sat down and the, the judge came in. She came in and she sat down at her desk and she was in her robes and all of this and uh, she said so tell me about your need for speed and I, I had nothing to say I was frightened to death I was sweating bullets uh, I was as nervous as I could be I, my teeth were probably chattering I know my knees were knocking um, and so she reviewed my record and she said now we can do one of two things She said, uh, and it's your choice, she said, we can take your license away for a year, your driver's license away for a year, or we can uh, levy a fine and take your license away for three months. And um, she said, um, but you have to promise that you will not be cited for speeding again. And I said, I'll pay the fine, I'll take the three months, and you'll never see my face in court again. I took, uh, I took my medicine. But it was a very frightening experience for me because I knew when you stand before a judge, this is serious business. This is not something to be taken lightly. In the passage that Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we'll not go there just yet, we'll get there in just a moment, talks about all of us appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know if you've ever read that passage before, I don't know if you've ever considered that passage before, but I remember as a young boy in church. And then growing up a little bit later on, reading that passage, and that always bothered me. I I would read that passage and it would strike fear in my heart that I would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I, you know, I don't know if it was that generation, my parents' generation, that would use a passage like that to keep us kids in line. I don't know. Uh, But I would often hear from my Sunday school teachers and 
from a number of pastors that you're going to stand before the Lord God and he's going to review your life and you're going to have to give an answer for all of the sins that you've committed, for every idle word that you've spoken, for every bad thing that you've done, every bad thing that you've said, even the very bad things that you've thought, you're going to have to give an answer to the Lord for that. And I, I, I would come away from that terrified, just absolutely shaken to the very core of my being. And so in those days, I was not like the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation. At the very end of the book of the Revelation, when he says, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, that was not my prayer. That was not my prayer. Because I knew the kind of person that I was, and in many instances my sister is right, I, I wasn't the best-natured, best-behaved boy that my father and mother raised, but I was still a Christian, and yet it frightened me to death that I would have to stand before the Lord. And in my mind, in my mind's eye, I pictured Jesus sitting at the table with a large screen behind him and my life had been completely videotaped and he would run that tape from the very beginning of my days until the time I stood before him and he would pause that thing every now and again and ask me to explain why I did what I did, why I said what I'd said. And believe me, he paused it many, 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 many times. And I just couldn't figure that. I couldn't fathom that. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp that as a Christian, that my Lord would do that. And it continued to bother me and bother me and bother me. I don't know what you've thought about that. I don't know if you've ever considered that in your own heart, in your own mind. But I want to talk about that this morning. Because I think there are some things that we need to clear up about the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans chapter 14, let me ask you the question, what is the judgment seat of Christ? And should you as a Christian be concerned about that? What is the judgment seat of Christ? And should you as a Christian be concerned about that? The Apostle Paul writes... In Romans chapter 14, we're going to begin at verse 7. Romans chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. Stand for the reading of God's Word, if you will, please. Romans 14, beginning at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. This is the word of God. We pray his blessing upon the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, again, the passage that Pastor Chris read at the beginning of the service, our call to worship, the Apostle Paul basically states the same thing to the Corinthian church. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may give, that each one, excuse me, may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Now, both the passage in Romans and the passage here in 2 Corinthians can be a cause for concern for a lot of Christian people. But it ought not to be of concern for the Christian because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, The apostle says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And I submit to you this morning, my friends, that if that becomes uh, the central desire of our heart, that we would live our life pleasing to the Lord, then the judgment seat of Christ would strike no fear in our heart. Or in our spirit. If we strive to live a life well-pleasing to the Lord. Every single day. In every area of our lives. In our home life. Our public life. Our church life. Our vocational life. If we strive to be pleasing to the Lord. In our uh, academic life. In our financial life in our recreational life, in every area of our life, if we strive to be pleasing to the Lord, then appearing before the Bema of Christ should not be a disconcerting thought. And I'm going to share with you why I believe that is so. From these two texts, from Romans as well as from 2 Corinthians, There are four um, facts that the Apostle Paul speaks about uh, that we need to note. First of all, we understand that the judgment seat of Christ is a place where we will stand before the Lord Jesus. Every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus. The judgment seat in, in the Greek, it is the bema, it is a single word. Uh, It is the place where we will meet face to face with Jesus Christ. We will stand before him. Second, we will bow before him, acknowledging his sovereign authority. There will not be a single individual, no matter how arrogant, how prideful, how bullheaded, how... how, Tough that individual may be in this life when you stand before Christ, every knee is going to bow. Every individual will humble himself before the Lord, acknowledging his sovereignty 
over them. The third thing is we will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. We will give an account of ourselves to the Lord. And then the fourth thing is we will receive from the Lord the things that are associated with how we have lived in this life. Those four things the Apostle Paul make unmistakable about the Bema of Christ. Now, when is this going to happen? This will happen after the rapture. After Jesus returns from heaven to take his people out of the earth. When is that going to happen? I have no clue. Scripture does not say, Jesus does not say when that is going to happen. There are a lot of people who have an idea. They think they know the day and time when Jesus is going to return, but God says no. Jesus himself says no. Only the Father in heaven knows the day and the time. Now, I believe that the time is very near. I do not believe that uh, humanity and the spiraling down into self-destruction and immorality and all of these other kinds of things, uh, I don't believe we can remain on this earth uh, for very much longer. We're not only destroying our own lives, but we're destroying the earth that we're living on. And I, I have a tendency of believing that God is getting fed up with a lot of the goings-on uh, in uh, the course of the human life in the earth. So I don't think the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ is very far off. I don't know a day or the hour. I wouldn't be foolish enough to say that I did. But I do know by the signs of the times that I see all around us and other ministers also see all around us, our time here is very short. Now, Again, I need to reiterate that the word rapture, you'll not find the word rapture anywhere in the biblical text. But you'll find the doctrine of the rapture certainly outlined in Scripture. And for those of you who may have a problem with that, may I also remind you that you'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the doctrine of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is everywhere in Scripture. So even though there are those who will say there is no such thing as rapture because it's not mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't mean that the event is not going to take place. I had an individual in Bible class in college, one of the students, uh, one of my fellow students in college at Cal Baptist. We were talking about the rapture. We were talking about because then... Back in the 70s, the early 70s, uh, there was some disturbance going on over in Israel. A uh, missiles were being aimed at Israel and, and people were getting really uptight and concerned that, you know, this could be the end now. The, the armies are mobilizing against Israel. And so we started talking about this, that, and the other, started talking about the rapture. And there was one of the students who came up and said, you know, there is no such thing as the rapture because it's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And I said, well, you have to believe that that Jesus took a bath every now and again, even though that's not mentioned in Scripture anywhere. But again, Trinity is not in the Bible, but we do believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The doctrine is certainly everywhere in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to look at that passage. You're in 2 Corinthians. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 
through 58. I'm not going to read that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. The Apostle Paul describes our resurrection at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul describes our resurrection, our translation from this life into eternal life through uh, verses 35 through 58. I want you to look at verses 50 through 58. Just a snippet, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, where the Apostle Paul writes... And now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, will, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians. You're in 1 Corinthians, so turn right and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church here uh, that was very... Uh, the church was very concerned uh, about the fact that the Lord may have already come and they missed it. And so the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians to clear up the matter in their mind that the Lord had not come at that point in time and therefore they had not missed the return of the Lord. But he writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 beginning in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord, Jesus, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In both passages, the apostle tells us that we should not fear the coming of the Lord. 
when Christ returns to take us home to be with him, that is a day, that is a time of great joy for the Christian. Amen? We should not be afraid to stand before the Lord who loved us and gave his life for us on the cross. I'm sure that for each and every one of us, there are probably a boatload of things in our lives that we are ashamed of, that we regret, that we wished we had never said, thought, or had done. But in both instances, the Apostle Paul has said when the Lord Jesus comes again, it's going to be a time of great joy. It's going to be a time, we should be comforted in knowing that our Lord is coming again. Amen? Amen. Following our resurrection that we've just read from these two passages of Scripture, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Following our resurrection, if we have died before Christ comes again, we will be resurrected from the grave. If we are alive when Jesus Christ comes again, we will be immediately translated from this mortal flesh to an immortal, eternal, glorified body. We will be taken out of the earth and we will meet the Lord in the air and we'll go on to be with the Lord in glory. Then we will stand before the Bema of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Apostle Paul says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now again, the thought of standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat gives a lot of Christians discomfort. Gives them a frightening feeling. But it doesn't have to be that way and it shouldn't be that way. We should look forward to with great joy and anticipation that the Lord is returning. Why? Well, first of all, Only those who have believed in and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will stand before the Bema of Christ. Only those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will stand before the Bema. And why should we take comfort in that? Because the, if you're a Christian and you're, you're standing before the Bema of Christ, you're standing before the one who loves you more than any individual has ever loved you. And he has loved you so much that he was willing to demonstrate his great love for you by dying on the cross for you. And if this one who loves us with an infinite, eternal love should review our lives for the things that we have said or done, and we'll get to that in just a moment, we should not fear that. Because he is not going to take off his hat of wondrous love and put on the hat of a mean, snarling, uh, hard-hearted judge. That's not the Christ of Scripture. The one who loved us and went on the cross to die for us is the same one who will love us as he sits on the Bema as we stand before him. The same one who loves us with that great, merciful, gracious love. The Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, they will be resurrected after 
the tribulation period of time, they will stand before the Lord as the millennial kingdom begins. Everyone else then will be resurrected and stand before the great white throne judgment of God at the end of time. So we should not fear standing before the Bema of Christ because the one who stands as our judge is the one who loves us, who has died for us, who has sealed salvation for us by his resurrection. Second, the Bema of Christ Jesus is not, and get this, it is not a judgment for sin. The Bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, is not a judgment for sin. It is not a judgment that leads to heaven or to hell. If you stand before the Bema of Christ, your eternal life in glory is secured. You will not stand before the Lord God in fear of losing your standing in heaven for a place in hell. Because it is not a judgment for sin. The judgment for sin has already passed for the Christian. You're sitting here this morning and you realize that uh, you still sin on occasion. And you realize that as long as you're in this flesh, you're going to be subject to the desires and the weaknesses of the flesh. Amen? You're not happy about that. You don't desire that. It's not something that you relish. It's not something that you look forward to. But that's the reality of it. Amen? We are, sinner. We are sinful people, saved by God's grace, yes, but still subject to the things of the flesh. We know that. Jesus knows that. But it's not a judgment for sin that we have committed in the past, commit today, or commit in the future. Because those sins were judged on the cross when Jesus died. Can you say amen to that? Those sins were judged on the cross when Jesus died. Died. Scripture tells us that when Jesus died, He became sin for us. All of our sin and the penalty and the judgment of God and the wrath of God for our sin was placed upon Him. And through His sacrificial death, that debt that we owed to God was completely canceled. Completely canceled. So when we stand before the Bema of Christ. It is not for the judgment of sin. That sin has already been judged and it has been taken away. Uh, you know, I wish I could uh, stay here for a little while longer and talk to you about the significance of this in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant where the Lord required for the redemption of His people Two sacrificial lambs. One was to be slaughtered and the blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies. The other lamb, the priest, placed his hands upon the head of that lamb, announced all of the sins of the people on that lamb, and that lamb was taken out into the wilderness. One lamb, the blood was shed that sin could be covered. The second lamb, the sins were taken away from us never to return again. Jesus 
fulfilled both of those aspects of redemption when he died on the cross. He not only shed his blood that our sins would be atoned for, but he took the penalty of our sin completely away from us. So when Jesus died on the cross, in John chapter 19 and verse 30, one of the very last words that he spoke from the cross was, it is finished. It is finished. And let me explain to you exactly what Jesus meant when he used that word, tetelestai, in the Greek language. It is finished. The word literally means brought to an end or bring to an end. It means to be completed. It means to be fulfilled. It means to be accomplished or perfected. When Jesus died on the cross and he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. First of all, it was a cry of joy. Now we wouldn't think of this, we don't normally think of this, when we think of the death of Jesus on the cross. We don't think of it as being a joyful thing, but Jesus did. It was a cry of joy that he had completed, he had fulfilled, he had perfected God's plan of salvation for the human race. Now, I, I must step back and say that as a human, clothed in human flesh, he was not happy about dying on the cross. It was a painful death that he died on the cross. But in his spirit, he rejoiced before the Lord because his death meant the accomplishment of God's plan of salvation for the human race. And that joy, the Apostle Paul talked about that. For the joy that was placed before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Gave his life that we could be saved. He had joy in his spirit as he hung on that cross. Even though his body was racked with pain, he had joy overflowing in his spirit. Secondly, it was the cry of victory. Not only was it the cry of joy for accomplishing the salvation plan of God, but it was also a cry of victory. From the very beginning of human history, Satan has been working to disrupt and to destroy God's plan for our salvation. And even in the appearing of Christ, the incarnation of Christ in human flesh, he was busy trying to trip Jesus up, trying to trap Jesus, trying to orchestrate situations in which Jesus would be compromised. But Jesus kept his eyes on the Lord. Jesus kept his heart on the Lord. Jesus kept his faith in the Lord and resisted the temptation, resisted the traps of Satan. Satan thought he had Jesus backed into a corner. He thought that he had won the victory when Jesus died upon the cross. But <laughs> Jesus rose again from the dead. And not only was Satan defeated, he is defeated forever. Amen? Amen. You don't need to be afraid of Satan. Amen. You don't need to be afraid of Satan. Hollywood churns out all of these demonic, satanic movies to strike fear in your heart. All of these things that, uh, you know, Satan can dream up uh, in the hearts and minds of men that would put fear in our heart. You don't need to fear Satan. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit living in your life, you don't need to fear the enemy of God. You are a child of God. 
And God protects and keeps what belongs to Him. It was a cry of victory. It was a cry of victory. Third, it was the cry of completion. It was, a, it was a cry of completion. When you believe in and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your sins, again, are completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. Let me say it again. Completely forgiven. Amen? Your sin debt and my sin debt was paid in full when Jesus died. And because Jesus used the word tetelestai, to mark the event, your salvation, and, and get this, guys, your salvation, even though you have not been fully and completely saved, that is yet to come. When Christ comes, then our salvation will be brought to completion in us. But even now, before that time has come, your, the salvation of God in you has been perfected. It has been perfect. Nothing lacking. There's nothing missing in the salvation that God has blessed you with. It has been completed by Christ Jesus. And when you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and received Him into your heart, that salvation that you have received is a salvation that is perfect. You can't add anything to it. And no one can take anything away from it. Amen? You hear me? It has been perfected. It can never change. And it will never change. Not by me, not by you, not by any church, not by any denomination, not by Satan, not even by God Himself will change the perfected salvation that Jesus Christ has blessed you with. And how do we know this? Because three days after His crucifixion, Jesus was resurrected from death sealing forever the salvation that he accomplished upon the cross for you and for me. For this reason, and I stated it before and I'll state it again, for this reason I do not believe in the security of the believer which puts the burden of proof upon my ability to stay saved. I don't believe in that. I do believe in the security of God's salvation in the believer because that puts the burden of proof upon the Lord God and His ability to keep the saved person saved. It's not up to me to stay saved. That's up to God. He's the one who saved me to begin with. And I wasn't saved because what I, what I was able to do, what I was able to, to uh, accomplish in my life. No, it was the Lord God who saved me by the salvation that was already perfected upon the cross in Jesus Christ. I can't add anything to it. And I cannot take anything away from it. If I am saved, I am saved by the perfect salvation that God has granted me in Christ Jesus. It's not up to me to keep that. It is up to God to keep me in that. That's why I have no fear about Satan about the world that we live in, about my own weaknesses, about my own sin, about my feelings and my thoughts and my attitudes from time to time. I, you know, I, I despise sin. I do. I abhor it. 
I, I, I wish to God that I was already free from it, but I realize that I'm not. But I'm not afraid of that. And I'm not afraid of the judgment that will come because of because that judgment is gone. That judgment has already passed from me. Now, I want you to remember this. Please, remember this. The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross paid your sin debt and my sin debt in full. Nothing lacking. If you're a Christian, every sin that you've ever committed in the past, every sin that you will commit in the future has already been forgiven by God our Father through the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. You're in 1 Thessalonians, so turn right and go to the book of Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. What does this have to do with the Bema of Christ? Well, if you don't understand what this has to do with the Bema, you've been asleep. You need to wake up. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But now, he, speaking of Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been, this is the covenant of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, the covenant that was received back in the days of Moses, if that first, or back in the days of Abraham, and then um, verified again and again through Isaac, Jacob, and on down through Moses, and so on. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now to get this. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. What? What? I will remember no more. Not for a day, not for a week, not for half a lifetime, but I will remember them no more. Turn back to the book of Psalm. Psalms 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Psalm 103. Well, let's go back up to, yeah, Psalm 103, 10, 11, and 12. Let's go back up to verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Are you grateful for that? Can you say thank you, Lord Jesus, for that? He's not dealt with us according to our sins 
and according to our and our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And again, just to give you the mental picture here. You go so far north on the globe, you'll start going south, right? You get on I-5 and you go as far north on I-5 as you can, then you get some sled dogs and you go all the way up to the North Pole. And after you get to the North Pole, it doesn't matter which direction, you know, which way you turn, you're going to start going south. But if you, if you start here and you get on a plane and you fly east, you'll never go west. You'll always go east. Even when you come back to the place of origin, you're still going east. This is what the psalmist understood. And that's why he used these terms here. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. Forever! They will never return. Because you'll never go west going east. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I'm trying to lay a foundation here, so bear with me. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the church at Rome, chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. And we'll also look at verse 2. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Death is the penalty for sin. Christ has set me free from the penalty of sin. And I don't stand condemned. And you don't stand condemned because the salvation that Jesus has won for us on the cross has been perfected. One final passage, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John, so all the way over to the end of the New Testament, before the book of the Revelation, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, so he's talking to Christians here. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation means satisfaction. It means appeasement. Jesus Christ has appeased God's wrath. He has satisfied God's justice for our sinfulness. That's why he could say in Romans chapter 1, Paul could say in Romans chapter 1, that if we are in Christ Jesus, we are justified. 
That's what he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified means to be declared not guilty. Now, I know I'm guilty of sin, and I know you're guilty of sin, but because of Jesus Christ, in the eyes of God, we are not guilty of sin. Why? Because we've received Christ as Lord and Savior. He paid the price for our sin. He has satisfied the judgment of God for our sin. And we stand before God not guilty. Now, why do we need to remember all of this? Why, why, you know, what's, what's the deal here with all of this? When the Christian stands before the judgment seat of Christ, get this, when the, when the Christian stands before the Bema of Christ, it will not be for the judgment of sin. All of these passages of Scripture have underscored the reality that in the mind of God, those don't exist anymore. God doesn't see them anymore. God doesn't take account of those anymore because the account has been satisfied. The debt has been paid. So you're not going to stand before the Bema of Christ and have to give an account for every sin that you've committed because the screen will be blank. That's right. So why do we stand before the Bema of Christ? It is not that we might give an account of our sins and an explanation for our sins, it is for the purpose of reward for faithful ministry and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. But we're not finished about this this morning. It's not going to be for the judgment of sin because that judgment is already passed. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has ascended to the Father on high. Jesus is waiting for the Father to say, go get him, and he's going to come and get us, and then he's going to take us home, and then we will stand before him to receive the rewards that he has in store for us to receive according to the faithfulness that we've had in serving the Lord, in ministering the name of Jesus Christ to others while we were here in the earth. Now, why do I believe that? Because, again, the Apostle Paul uses the word bema. It's a Greek word, bema. And it is, in trans it is translated correctly, the judgment seat. It refers to a raised place where a judge sat. And so because it's translated judgment, we have this negative idea because when you stand before a judge, it ain't good when you stand before the judge. You know, it always, it never turns out the way you want it to turn out. You know, it's all, I've done something wrong. It's funny when some people, you know, when I ask somebody to come to my office, if there's anybody standing around, ooh, you're going to go to the principal's office. Like coming to my office at my invitation is something bad. Huh. It usually is, but nonetheless, you know... Uh, it is properly translated judgment seat, yes, but understand what Bema really meant in the days of the Apostle Paul. Let me explain it to you. In ancient Greece, opposing parties in a debate argued from a Bema. You know, you watch the political debates on TV. Do you? Some of you do. 
you, when you watch a debate, uh, a political debate on television, and when the debate is over, uh, you know, the pundits will say, well, this candidate won the debate or this candidate lost the debate. Neither candidate is going to be punished. Neither candidate is going to be condemned. Neither candidate is going to be thrown in jail. It is simply the awarding of the winner of the debate. That's how the bema was used in ancient Greece. This is a Greek word, and that's how the bema was used in those days when deciding the winner of an Olympic contest. Back in the ancient Olympic Games, you know, in, in the Olympic Games today, the winner, the gold uh, medal winner stands on a high platform, and then the, the silver winner stands on a slightly lower platform, and then the, the bronze winner uh, stands on a slightly lower platform. That's a bema. It's the recognition of the accomplishment, the achievement of the participant in that particular game. It is not to condemn the loser. It is not to throw him in jail. It's not to ban him from the Olympic Games for the future. It's simply to acknowledge the achievement of the participant. That was the Bema in ancient Greece. In Judaism... In ancient Judaism, before the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the synagogues, where uh, in the communities where they had their local churches, the leader of the synagogue, the teacher of the synagogue, the priest or the rabbi of the synagogue stood at a bema to expound the Word of God, to teach the Word of God. We call it a pulpit today, but in the days of the ancient Jews, it was called a bema. It's not a place to condemn anyone. It's not a place to censor anyone. It is not a place to criticize uh, anyone. It is simply a place to expound the Word of God to individuals who need to hear it. The bema. It was not a place where a guilty person was condemned. It was a place where issues were discussed, debated, and resolved. It was where the participants in games or in debates were awarded for their participation. So what is the bema of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, really all about? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We stand before the Lord and He will reward us for the service that we have rendered as Christian men, as Christian women. The service that we have rendered to the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry that we have conducted in His kingdom while here on the earth. Now we receive blessings daily for our faithful service to the Lord. And we receive punishments from time to time when we sin against the Lord. But we will be rewarded finally and fully on that day when Christ takes us to glory to be with Him and we stand before Him. I, I could go on a little bit more about this, but uh, you get the picture. You understand what Scripture is really talking about. Standing before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ is nothing to be feared. It's nothing to be afraid of. 
It's nothing to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. Because the Lord God is not going to review our sins and demand an answer for us as to why we committed those sins. No, that's already covered by His blood. That's already been taken care of. That debt has been paid. That sin and that judgment has been canceled. It is a time of joy when we can stand before the Lord and receive from Him those things, according to the Apostle Paul, those things that we have done in this life whether good or bad. Now let me explain to you the, uh, the, the good and the bad. And because, uh, again, we can have a problem with that. The good and the bad has nothing to do... The, the, the two words that are used by the apostle have nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with morality. The word good is agathos, and the word agathos that's used in this text, refers to things which are beneficial, things that are helpful, things which are in accordance with what is required. It has nothing to do with being a good boy or a good girl. It has nothing to do with morality at all. It has everything to do with conducting ourselves or applying ourselves to things which are beneficial. The word bad is kakos, kakos. It, again, has nothing to do with morality. It refers to things that are worthless or useless, things that are of no benefit to anyone. And so when the apostle says that we will, give, we will answer to the Lord for those things that are good and those things that are bad, it is simply he will reward us for those things that we have uh, incorporated into our lives and the ministries that we've had that were beneficial not only to others but also beneficial to his kingdom. And, with, and reward will be withheld when uh, those things that we have associated with in this life were not beneficial to other people and were not beneficial to the kingdom of God. So it's not, again, again it is not answering for sins and it's not uh, being proud of, of the pristine way in which we've conducted ourselves as a preacher or evangelist or missionary or whatever. No, it has nothing to do with that at all. It has everything to do with living your life as a Christian man, a Christian woman in whatever field God has called you to and whatever giftedness God has blessed you with that you would fulfill that calling and use that giftedness to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus Christ and to be of benefit to others. It has everything to do with that. That's what the Bema is all about. So now, in conclusion, I simply want to emphasize that the coming day of Christ Jesus, the day when the Lord is going to appear, and we don't know when that will be, but it will be soon, when He appears and takes us out of the earth into heaven, we're going to stand before Him and he will have already, and we'll talk about this next Sunday, he will have already assessed our faithfulness in living and in serving and in ministering his kingdom to other people. It will not be a judgment that condemns. It will not be a judgment that reviews sins. It will be a judgment that rewards or withholds reward from those who have built their lives on the salvation that he has provided. Therefore... Therefore, the words of the Apostle John are again most important for us today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
It's what the Apostle Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that we are to live our lives pleasing unto the Lord. And as we do so, there is no fear of judgment when we stand before him. Let's stand together, David. You come and lead us in a song, and we'll be dismissed. Yep. Yep. In no better place to start praising God than just thank Him for saving our souls. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that does give us comfort. We thank you, Father, for all that you have taught us, not only from the scriptures, but also from men and women who have been important in our lives in bringing us to a greater understanding of your truth. Now, as we have been here to worship and to praise and to study, uh, may we now leave with joy in our heart and confidence in our spirit uh, that we can serve you uh, and we can minister to others in your name knowing that very soon Jesus is going to appear and he will come for us to take us out of this life and out of this world and that he will bring us before him in that great review stand where we receive the reward for faithful service. But until that day, keep us, Lord, ever vigilant. Keep us ever aware uh, of the eminence of your coming and of the needs of those that are around us that we might minister the things of your kingdom into the lives of others. Bless us as we go that we will go rejoicing that Jesus is coming soon because it's in his name we pray and all of God's people said. God bless you and have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.